This is Unorthodox, the world's leading Jewish podcast. And this week, well, it's just me, Liel. Why? Because in a few days, we will be observing Tisha B'Av, the saddest and I think most misunderstood day in the entire Jewish calendar. And because I'm spending the month here in Israel, right where the historical drama we'll be thinking about this week took place, we thought we'd bring you a more contemplative sort of episode. The kind of episode you want to hear when it's like 300 degrees outside and your tradition tells you that you have to slow down and sit on the ground and turn off the lights and think about very terrible things. So what's Tish above all about? I could give you the Wikipedia-ish sort of answer and say that it is the day in which, incredibly, both the first and the second temple were destroyed. The first in 587 or 586 BCE, the second in 70 CE, the first by the Babylonians and the second by the Romans. But this is unorthodox and we like to tell stories. So here, briefly, is the most famous Tisha B'Av story straight out of the Talmud, the story of Kamsa and Bar Kamsa. The Talmud tells us that once upon a time, there was a rich dude who was about to throw a really, really big party. His BFF was this guy named Kamsa. So the rich guy told his servant to run out and invite Kamsa to the shindig. The servant, alas, wasn't too bright. And instead of inviting Kamsa, he invited this other cat named Bar Kamsa. Honest mistake, right? You could totally see how it happened. But if that wasn't bad enough, Bar Kamsa just happened to be the one person on planet Earth who the rich guy truly, absolutely, completely, passionately hated. So imagine the rich guy's surprise when the party finally starts, everyone's having drinks, everyone's having a good time, and in walks his worst frenemy, Mr. Barkamta himself. So the rich guy storms over to Barkamta and yells at him to leave now. Barkamta himself is no slouch. He looks around the room and he realizes that Literally all of Jerusalem's elite, all the wealthy folk, all the important rabbis, they're all sitting there eating and drinking and watching this drama go down. So in an attempt to save face, he asks the host to let him stay. I'll even pay for my food, he offers. But the host doesn't budge. Okay, says Bar Kamsa, here's the deal. I'm pretty rich myself. Let me stay and I'll pay for half of this very expensive dinner. No dice, says the host. Scram, leave. Now by now, Bar Kamsa is desperate. He decides to go for broke. If you let me stay, he tells the host, I will pay for everything. I will pay every single shekel for this feast. But the host is so consumed by his hatred of Bar Kamsa that he kicks the poor guy out. Now, Bar Kamsa is angry. I mean, really, really angry. Like someone out of a Quentin Tarantino movie angry. And like someone out of a Quentin Tarantino movie, he vows revenge. Not only on the cruel host, but also on all those muckety-mucks who sat by idly and did nothing while he was being humiliated. 
So he goes to the Romans, who are then in charge of the land of Israel, and tells them that the Jews of Jerusalem are planning to revolt. The Romans are pretty skeptical, they're rational people, so they decide to come up with a little test. They take a heifer and they send it as a gift to the Jewish community. If the Jews sacrifice the heifer in their temple, then everything's well and everyone's peaceful. But if they refuse it, they're likely headed towards a rebellion. So the Romans asked Bar Kamsa to deliver the animal to the temple, which is just the golden opportunity Bar Kamsa had been waiting for. Because Bar Kamsa knows halacha, or Jewish law, he knows that we're not allowed to sacrifice an animal unless it is without blemish. So Bar Kamsa goes ahead and wounds the heifer, making it ineligible for sacrifice. When the rabbis see the animal, they panic. They're not stupid. They understand exactly what Bar Kamta was doing. So they debate furiously over whether or not to accept this offering and avoid the risk of incurring the wrath of Rome. But eventually, they decide they just cannot bend the divine rules no matter what. The offering is refused. Rome is incensed. Caesar sends his armies. The siege of Jerusalem begins, ending on Tisha B'Av, the ninth day of the Hebrew month of Av, with a temple in flames again. Because of Kamtsa and Baal Kamtsa, the Holy of the Holies was destroyed. The lesson here is simple. Spend too much time on infighting, tribalism, sectarianism, nitpicking, partisanship, the beautiful Hebrew phrases, sinat chinam, or hatred in vain, and destruction is bound to follow. It's a bit weird, if we're being really honest, observing this day in modern Israel. On the one hand, it's very much a day of mourning. Try going out to a restaurant or to a bar or to the movies in Tel Aviv this coming Sunday, and you'll find that almost everything is closed in observance of Tisha B'Av. On the other hand, Many Israelis, especially non-religious ones, feel like observing Tisha B'Av in Israel is almost like a contradiction in terms. The day, after all, is a commemoration of destruction, and modern Israel itself is the tail end of that story, a miracle of an indigenous people returning to rebuild its ancient ancestral land after two millennia in forced exile. So, how should we observe this day? Some of us will fast and read Kinot, beautiful and haunting poems bemoaning the woes that befell the Jewish people throughout history. But all of us, no matter what we believe or how we practice, should take a moment and contemplate this central message of sinat chinam, of baseless hatred, and why we again run the risk of letting our rage overcome our compassion and bringing ruin upon ourselves. So to that end, we have a special Tisha B'Av themed show for you today. We'll be talking to Rebecca Sofer of Modern Loss and Walter Russell Mead, author of the new book, The Ark of a Covenant, The United States, Israel, and the Fate of the Jewish People, to get some perspective on how to grieve and how to fight on Jews and Gentiles, on America and on Israel.
Up first, Rebecca Sofer, who returns to the show to talk with Stephanie about her new book, The Modern Loss Handbook, an interactive guide to moving through grief and building your resilience. Rebecca brings her honest and refreshing approach to discussing and dealing with tragedy and reminds us of the importance of finding light and sometimes even laughter in the darkest times. Have a listen. Rebecca Sover, welcome to Unorthodox. Welcome back. Thank you so much. I'm like, this is like the thing that I am so happy and lucky to fold myself into today. Thanks for having me. I am so excited to have you here. It's weird because I'm always excited to talk to you, but we are going to talk about grief. And I think that duality is sort of the key to what it is that you do. You're such a brilliant presence, but then you're also talking about some some really heavy stuff. So tell us about this new book, The Modern Loss Handbook, an interactive guide to moving through grief and building your resilience. Yeah, well, I think it's, you know, I I know it sounds weird to say I'm so excited we're going to talk about grief, but like, doesn't that show why we need to talk about it? Because if you're really excited to talk about it, that means you're probably not getting an ongoing invitation in a lot of corners to do so. And that's why what Modern Loss does is provide that invitation because we really need it. I, I, I don't think I need to make a case for how much grief there is out there right now. So the Modern Loss Handbook is something that you know, I'm really proud of. I wrote it in the deepest, darkest depths of last winter, first first COVID winter, uh, 2020 to 2021. It's something that I kind of wish that somebody would have handed to me in the first months and actually even years after my mom died in a car accident. And then my dad died four years later from a heart attack. And I really wish that someone could have handed something like this to me in addition to like the casseroles and the edible arrangements and the offers of like whatever I can do because it's something that is full of guidance, like hard-earned lessons from 15 years of my living with loss and also from exponentially more of thousands of people in the modern loss community all around the world who have taught me so much more than I could have ever known about grief and loss on my own. I've learned so much from them. And so when COVID hit, Modern Loss is known for, obviously we're an online publication. We have a newsletter, really known for our live storytelling events. All the live stuff went away from one day to the next. And I was just reeling, pivoting to figure out how to give our community ongoing online connection points. And that was really hard because I was also like reeling from our new abnormal and had COVID people at home. And, you know, it was just really stressful. And so the book was my realization of how I could reach all these people. So that's what it is. It aims to help you stay connected to your person, stay connected to yourself and stay connected to the world around you. Because those are kind of the three pillars of what you really need to do in order to move through your own loss and not get over it. That's like a total myth, but move through your own grief and loss in a way that allows you to somehow create something out of the shitstorm that's meaningful. 
how do we do it? I mean, your book offers so many things from like the practical journal side of things to sort of insights you've gained from your own experience and your community's experience. How do people do that? I wish that I could come on this interview and say, okay, I've I've cracked the grief code and it's these five things, which are like, you know, maybe that like Elizabeth Kubler-Ross stages of grief, which by the way, was not meant for the grieving. It was meant for the dying, just for anybody who is hitting themselves in the forehead, wondering why they're not getting grief right because they're not adhering to those stages one and done. It's because that's not a thing. There is no magic bullet here. There is no vaccine for grief. There is only trying and doing and messing up and trying again and struggling and trying something that works and realizing it works and then trying something else that works and kind of building up your resources so that you can feel supported automatically in this experience of loss. We individualized grief. We like to make it something that is, you know, very much an American thing. Like, oh, you've got this, like you can power through. I don't know how you do it. You're You're so strong. You're a warrior. Like, fuck that shit, right? Like, I hate the war metaphors. This isn't like desert storm, right? Like, it's grief. This is a natural human experience. And so the realization that I'm trying to impart onto people is that grief is a forever thing even if it becomes more like loss, like living with loss. And the more that you can accept that it's a forever thing and that waves are going to come, but then eventually I promise you they will go. Like how can you figure out ways to stay connected to the person that you lost because the relationship still is very much alive because you're alive, you know? We don't talk a lot about how grief messes with your friendships and your social life, how not everybody can hang with your loss because we do a shit job of preparing people to do that in this culture. We don't normalize the conversation. So friends fall by the wayside or they say really awful things because they're just not educated in how to help you. But a lot of it is just how it literally affects every part of your life and what can you do about it? You have power within you. You don't have to empower yourself. So how are you going to use that power? Is it weird to sort of be an expert on grief for other people? I mean, expert is the wrong word, but like you're helping people with their grief. I imagine you still have bad days yourself. Yeah, I mean, I I have bad days. I'm, you know, not thrilled with the world at this moment. I had um, my mom's birthday last year and... I had kind of been down with that. Like, right. I've been, you know, it's been years and years and I've gotten to the point where like on her birthday, I'm wistful and I miss her as I always do. But that day last year, last fall was so hard for me and it took me by surprise. It really did. And I was okay because I know enough to know that things take you by surprise sometimes. And that like, as Rilke says, no feeling is final. Right. So I just held on to that, like, you know, that mantra all day, but it it was just this reminder that like, you know, I'm still living without people who I really, really miss every single day. And when the world feels really hard and really cruel, I'm simultaneously so delighted that they're not here to have to deal with this bullshit. But I'm also so angry that they're not because they can't be with me in this. And it feels so lonely. Um, so yeah, I have bad days. I'm a human person and I'm not a therapist. I'm a freaking journalist, you know, like I don't, I, this is not like the career that I actively signed up to do, but 
I think that it's safe to say at this point in time, now that Modern Loss has been going for almost nine years, that it it definitely is my life mission, um, even if it is not my only life mission, because I really went through a period of time where I didn't know if I was going to be upright or functional or joyful or be able to like revert to my baseline neurotic Jewish Upper West Side self of like freaking out about really little things because I was like so existential and just freaking out about big things. And now years later, you know, I am, you know, I'm able to be like that. I'm able to be all those things and I'm so grateful for it. And I want to do my part in helping other people to be able to get there. And I'm well aware that it's not for me, Rebecca, to do. It's just for me, Rebecca, to be able to facilitate a platform that enables people to connect with each other over their stories and showing people examples of resilience or other ways of thinking that they may not ordinarily be exposed to. And so I think that there's a need in this divisive world to bring people together around a universal shared experience, which is grief, because it's kind of one of the only things we have left to pull each other in. That's no, that's incredibly profound and completely true. Um, let's get to the Jewish stuff. <laughs> you you have a section on trigger days um, mm. and you you have these really cute illustrations and you basically have like September and then there's a line that says so many Jewish holidays. Oy. Uh, yeah. We talk a lot about the ways that Jewish ritual helps or offers a, some kind of roadmap for grief, for mourning. I imagine there's also ways that the Jewish calendar maybe in ways I hadn't thought about, is is triggering in, in ways as well. I mean, so could you talk a little bit about how you've personally found Jewishness both helpful and maybe challenging? I'm a very proud Jew. I, I, I'm extremely, you know, connected to my, my cultural Jewish identity. Um, and I've become even more so with the loss of my parents because I feel like it's really on my shoulders to give my kids a Jewish identity um, and then let them decide like whatever they want to do in life, like go forth and do whatever you're going to do. But like right now, we're going to learn about Hanukkah. We're going to learn about stories because this is really important to mommy and this is who you are. But yeah, I mean, like I was raised in a conservative synagogue outside. I'm from suburban Philly. I went to Harazine Synagogue. I was bought mitzvahed by David Wolpe, who, no, Gerald Wolpe, who's David Wolpe's from LA, his dad. And then my parents moved to a reform synagogue. And that's where, you know, um, in New York City, I uh, was a very active member of Stephen Wise Free Synagogue. That's where my kids went to preschool. So like, I really immersed myself in the Jewish community because it's really a very important touchstone for me. Living with loss, I need to tether myself to certain things because you feel very untethered, say, when both your parents die. And so I had to work to figure out how to retether myself. And that was one of the ways in which I did it. And so there are certain things that I, I do to that do help, you know, like making challah with my son, which I've admittedly been awful about lately because work has been so busy and challah takes so long. But that was like a ritual that I really loved doing because it really made me feel connected to my mom and my grandmom who died six months before she did. And then I felt like I was pulling this thread, this generational thread through to my son and like just somehow kind of like without 
being so forceful about it, just connecting all of us. That was like really amazing. And I also, um, every Friday night, I light the candles, whether or not my kids are listening or not. I, I light the candles. I say the Shabbat prayers. Um, it is like a, it's like a salve to me and it is a connection point and it's something that I hold on to. I use the high holidays as a way to say Yizkor and I do it less in a religious sense and more in a medita- meditative sense where, you know, I just kind of get into a mental zone that I feel is particularly reserved for me and nobody else because no one else is in my mind in that moment. And think about my parents and how I'm considering them on any particular year as I move forward in my life and my life takes on different forms and identities. And, you know, I remember, I think it was, gosh, it must've been 2019. I was at services and I was wearing my dad's um, talit and I was wearing it and it was Yom Kippur. And I looked down and I looked at the fringes and this shows you like how frequently I wear my dad's tally, which is like not that much, i.e. never. The last time I took it out was for my son's bris. So, you know, um, but I felt like I really wanted to wear it that day. And I looked down and I looked at the fringes and they were, one of them had a long braid in it. And it was, the braid stopped like two inches away from the ends. And I just fucking lost it. I was like, in, I think like the rabbi was talking. I don't even know what was going on, but I was in a time machine and I was transported back to like Harzion synagogue, high holidays on any given year in the nineties with my parents, with all my friends who would escape when it was time for the sermon and like go to the, you know, the, the rabbi study to hang out. Like I was never the cool kid, but I always like wanted to be. So I like went and hung out anyway. Um, and I was transported back to moments where when I was really bored, I would braid the fringes of my dad's talit and those were my braids that were on it. He had never taken them out. And it was like touching this moment back in time that was so meaningful and so beautiful. And it was also really sad, you know? So I have these moments in Judaism that that are really moving and profound. And then I have moments that really piss me off. Like when... I had an unveiling for my mom and I kind of was told by a lot of people in the Jewish community that it was supposed to feel better after that, lighter, uh, a different stage as it were. And the fact of the matter is that it actually ushered in like the worst year of my life, which was year two after my mom's death, which was even more painful than the first year because it was when everything kind of settled and hit me and felt so permanent, you know, so permanent forevermore. Um, she also died in a, you know, a, a violent car accident. So I was in shock for a really long time. And so I feel like I tried that and it didn't work. And when it came time for my dad's, um, unveiling, I actually, uh, didn't do one. And I felt okay with it because I still like light the yurt side candles. Like I'm still there, you know, like I don't visit the cemetery where my parents are. It's in Upper Darby, Pennsylvania. I'm not near there. Um, I don't really consider them as being there. I consider them as being everywhere. 
their energy is being everywhere. Um, and so certain things in Judaism like that, you know, um, the Shiva, of course, I think it, Elise Albert writes in our first book that I co-wrote with Gabby Berkner, who's my co-founder. She has an essay saying that Shiva is like the, the, the most, the, the smartest ritual ever created. And I will absolutely agree with that. But then there are moments like the Unatana Tokev where it's like, who shall live and who shall die? And I'm like, well, <laughs> why them? And why not like some other choice people who I could think of? <laughs> I mean, it's an awful thing to say, um, but I don't say it except for on this podcast to all these people. <laughs> but you know, everyone who's listening knows what I'm talking about. That it's really hard sometimes to wonder if there was some decision made that these people should not get to continue their pretty wonderful, rich lives with the people who adored them, you know, and it's a hard thing to, to sit with. And I don't like it. And I've read a lot of explanations about it. And guess what? I still don't like it. And that's okay. As my rabbi from Mainline Reform told me, I still get to keep my Jew card, even if there are certain things that I don't like. Rebecca Sofer, thank you for everything that you do for for sort of taking your own experience and and creating something that helps so many people. The website is modernloss.com. The new book is The Modern Loss Handbook. And thank you for being back with us on Unorthodox. Thank you so much for having me. Broadway comes to the 14th Street Y on Tuesday, May 21st. Join us at 7 p.m. for a conversation with cast members from Prayer for the French Republic, the Tony Award-nominated Best Play. Tony nominee Betsy Adam and fellow cast members Francis Benhamu, Ethan Haberfield, and Ari Brand will take part in a lively discussion moderated by the New York Times' Mark Tracy. They'll talk about the play's themes of Jewish identity, French culture, and Zionism in times of rising anti-Semitism. This event is part of 14Y's spring season of Jewish culture. As a Jewish community center, 14Y offers a variety of opportunities for people to discover, explore, and connect with Jewish life. Visit 14streetwide.org to learn more and purchase tickets to Broadway at 14Y. Hey, J.Crew, it is time for some pod biz. Tonight, May 16th, I will be moderating a Zoom conversation with Rabbi Sharon Browse and Shai Held about each of their new books. That's at 6 p.m. Eastern and the final event in my Unpacking the Book series with the Jewish Book Council and the Jewish Museum. This one's on Zoom, so no matter where you are, I hope you can make it. And tonight is actually a doubleheader for me. If you're in the New York area, I'll be at the Marlene Meyerson JCC Manhattan at 7.30 tonight in conversation with Israeli rapper and singer Jimbo J. He'll be performing and there will be delicious Israeli food from Chef Mushka, who made the famous Horosets at our Passover pop-up. You can find links to register for both of those events at tabletmag.com slash unorthodoxlive. We also have some great events coming up for Tablet members in person and on Zoom. On May 16th, Catherine Wolf will be in conversation with Jews who refuse to back down against hostile crowds in various arenas, from municipal buildings, school board meetings, and of course, college campuses. She'll be talking with Club Z's Masha Merkalova, Safe CUNY's Avraham Goldstein, Attorney John Kovac, Mel Waldorf, Steve Goldberg, and UNC Chapel Hill student Daniel Stumpel. Also coming up, a warm and intimate Zoom for those who have lost friendships since October 7th. That's on May 20th. 
21st and will be a great chance to connect and meet new people. And on May 30th, an in-person tablet meetup in Washington, D.C., hosted by Tablet's executive editor Wayne Hoffman and Catherine Wolf. That'll be at Charbar at 6 p.m. You can become a Tablet member at tabletm.ag slash UO member and get more information about all of these events. Okay, back to the show. Our next guest is the great Walter Russell Mead. He teaches foreign affairs at Bard College and writes regularly for the Wall Street Journal. He is one of our most astute foreign policy thinkers and writers and analysts. And he joins us to talk about his new book, The Ark of a Covenant, The United States, Israel, and the Fate of the Jewish People. He tells us about America's surprising early support for a Jewish state and why many in the Jewish community took longer to be convinced a debate that continues to inform the way we talk or fail to talk about Israel to this very day. Have a listen. Walter Russellmead, thank you for being uh, the Gentile of the Week on Unorthodox. It's great to be here. I don't recall being as gobsmacked by a book like this in a very long time. It is truly astonishing. But I want to start at the beginning. As the idea comes to you to write a book about, well, you know, America's relationship with Israel or understanding of of Israeli history, etc. Is there a moment in which you ask yourself, well, do we really need another book about that? Do I really want to spend the next X years of my life immersed in this subject matter? Obviously, a bunch of books have been written on this before, but I I came to this out of a sense that whatever books exist, and there's some very, very good ones, the public understanding of this relationship is not clear. And, you know, you find it in the popularity of of these ideas that, uh, quote, the Jews run uh, the United States, and that's why we have a pro-Israel policy. You know, at one level, you think, well, this is terrible. This is anti-Semitism, and it is it is prejudice, and it's bad, and that's true. But also, this ignorance is dangerous, because if you say the Jews run banking, it means you really don't understand the first thing about finance. If you say the Jews run American foreign policy, you don't understand American politics. You don't understand American foreign policy. Actually, also, by the way, don't understand American Jews. You know, so so this actually felt like the, it wasn't just a simple political or cultural problem that some people had some stereotyped ideas about how our Israel policy works, but rather it pointed to a sort of larger lack of comprehension of the world that we live in. And I thought, well, that's that's worth thinking about. I, I want to get to to an observation that you make. It's it's kind of like almost like a Disney ride that you take the reader on, in which you detail all the various reasons for why the American debate over U.S. Israel relationship gets so many things so wrong. Tell tell us why that is. Some of these are just related to the way so many of our foreign policy debates uh, produce more heat than light. Part of it is that. A lot of people are going to look at this at U.S.-Israel relationship and say, really, the question is, who's the more moral side, the Israelis or the Palestinians? And once you decide who the more moral side is, then it's really obvious what America should do. It should help the side that is right and fight the side that's wrong. 
it actually turns out that that is not a very good way to run the foreign policy of a major power. You can't ignore the morality, but you also can't just make the morality the guiding light. Your entire China policy can't be guided by your feelings about the Uyghurs. And, you know, you'll find people on the pro-Israel side who say, look, the Arabs have refused to over time and again to accept the partition, the UN plan. There's a right of self-determination for the Jewish people. All of this long list of things you can come up with. And then the Palestinians come forward with their own long list. And American politics gets absolutely convulsed by who's right, who's wrong. But in fact, there are other sets of questions. It's possible in order to to reach the major goals of American foreign policy, which, by the way, as I see it, are the preservation of the American way of life and the prevention of World War III, that you might sometimes have to not be guided entirely by a moral sense. But another is identity politics. People don't think of this issue of American policy toward Israel as a pure foreign policy issue. I have a lot of very liberal Jewish friends who believe their sense of what it means to be a Jew means that you really have to call out what you see as the moral failings of your side and your people by not being critical and not trying to say push President Biden to take a tougher stand on Israeli policy. You are betraying your own identity. And of course, there are other Jews who see it very differently. You see the same thing among Christians. And you'll see American Muslims who say that our country's attitude toward the Israeli-Palestinian dispute is somehow a measurement of whether I am accepted in the United States. You have all kinds of groups who see in some way their own situation mirrored in this Israeli-Palestinian dispute. And so our, our arguments are incredibly intense, uh, far beyond, frankly, the importance of any of these issues from a, the standpoint of kind of general American foreign policy. But that's a fact of life and it's not going away. And that's part of what I'm trying to understand in this book. One core observation of this book is that is the notion that the belief in the singular importance of, of the return of Jews to their ancestral homeland is actually pretty foundational from a religious, cultural, American perspective. I read in this book, Anything from things I didn't know about George Washington and the Founding Fathers to Teddy Roosevelt and the way that they understood Israel's importance or, or Zionism's, I should say, importance to the American project. So tell us a little bit about what that means as a core tenet of American history, not just as a foreign policy debate, but as a true point of belief. The majority of the English-speaking colonists who came to the United States belonged to various Protestant denominations in what's now the UK. And if you look at their ideas about both the place of Jews in the sort of divine scheme of things and their idea about the future of the Jewish people, there are a set of theological ideas that resonate widely today, even among Americans who have absolutely no religious belief or maybe even any consciousness of this cultural history. I think in some ways it begins from an idea that they had that the anti-Semitism that was common in the medieval and late Roman Empire church was part of the deviations from 
the spirit of true Christianity that the Protestants thought they were generally reformed. And in particular, they challenged the sort of widespread medieval Christian idea that once the Jews in the Bible reject Jesus, God's kind of done with them. The church is now Israel. And so when you read the Bible, Old or New Testaments, Hebrew or Greek scriptures, all of the things that are said about Israel in in those holy writings are now the possession of the church and of the Christians. And the Jews are simply irrelevant. Following some interpretations of the writings of St. Paul, and also following their very focused and in some ways very literal interpretations of the Hebrew scriptures. These early Protestants came to the view that God's promises to Abraham actually are still true. The Jews might have rejected Jesus, but God does not reject. The Jewish people still, the Jewish nation still has a part to play. And at the end of time or toward the end of time, They believe that the prophets predict that a second return from the second exile, or first exile, of course, was to Babylon, this second global exile, the Jews will return, and that will be part of the process by which God brings human history to a culmination. And this was a very, very influential theological idea, and it led to a much more favorable attitude toward the Jews. In the 19th century, this actually moves beyond the confines of religion and becomes sort of an element of American secular faith. They see that the rise of America, the rise of liberty, the rise of freedom is part of this process. And so America has some kind of vital role to play in world history and leading the world to the place where we're supposed to be. And they look at they looked at three of the peoples of classical antiquity that were familiar to everyone culturally in America at that time, the Greeks, the Romans, and the Jews, or the Greeks, the Italians, and the Jews. And in the 19th century, the condition of all three of these people was really rather miserable. So Americans had this idea that as progress went on, the Greeks and the Italians and the Jews would recover their ancient virtues. They'd be like Americans. And you actually had efforts in the 19th century of Americans trying to persuade Jews to come back to Palestine and start farming. Toward the end of the 19th century, Zionism begins to emerge as a movement among Jews. A lot of Americans aren't thinking, oh, for crying out loud, you know, what kind of Jewish agenda are these people going to try to impose on the rest of us? It's more like, oh, wow, the Jews have finally figured it out. (laughs) This is a sign that things are going to get better. And when the Jews go back to Palestine, this desert land is going to turn green and blossom. This people that are kind of universally looked down on and seen as weak and all of these things, they're going to emerge as, as heroes. And the whole world will look at how democracy and agricultural living has transformed the Jewish people, and they'll realize that the American way can do that for everybody. Jewish success shows that America is right. And this was a powerful cultural force in the United States 
before Herzl wrote Der Judenstaat, his original pamphlet on Zionism. There's an excerpt of your book that was published in Tablet, and you pinpoint a pretty surprising moment. In the 1890s, a petition that is presented to the president at the White House, it's signed by a bunch of big, you know, barren business people, like names we recognize. It's signed by the New York Times. I mean, could you tell us what what this was, what this Blackstone petition was? Well, there was this guy, uh, William Blackstone. He was a successful businessman who then became a lay preacher. Petition was, was to President Benjamin Harrison, asking him to work toward the establishment of a national home for the Jewish people in Palestine. What gave it urgency was at the time, Uh, the Russian Empire, they were deliberately trying to drive out their Jews, to oppress their Jews. Uh, One famous Russian is supposed to have said, a third of them will emigrate, a third of them will die, a third of them will convert. Uh, And so a stream of impoverished Jews were were leaving Russia. And they're saying, what's going to happen to these Jews? Where are they going to go? And it's in the American interest to try to promote this idea. And this petition was signed by John D. Rockefeller, by J.P. Morgan, the great banker, a consensus of the great newspapers of the East Coast, the future president of the United States, William McKinley, the chief justice of the Supreme Court. Everyone, it seems, but the Jews, because I learned from your book that when Blackstone went to leading Jews of the time, including one leading reform rabbi, Emil G. Hirsch, who's a very influential figure, Hirsch said to him, I'm not signing because I quote, we, the modern Jews, say that we do not wish to be restored to Palestine. The country wherein we live is our Palestine. Palestine. And and in your book, again, we see again and again and again, despite the fact that Jews around the world were facing real violence and persecution, despite the fact that so many Christian Americans, including influential ones, were, were rising to the occasions, so many prominent Jewish leaders ending up on the wrong side of history. So my question is merely this. What is wrong with, with the Jews? <laughs> um, it's not that surprising in a way. First of all, the, the position of the Reformed Jews at the time, and, and Reformed Judaism actually adopted into its sort of original constitution this idea that Jewish people were, you know, they did not have a destiny of returning to Palestine. The exile into the nations was not a punishment, it was a mission. And the role of the Jews was to teach the world the tenets of monotheism and to model ethical behavior and spread light in that way, which you could only do by being dispersed. And so one fulfilled one's destiny as a Jew by embracing this. And this dovetailed very, very nicely with the way the European Enlightenment supported the emancipation of the Jews. It was that the Jews of, say, France would give up any sense that the Jews are a separate people from the French people. And so a French Jew would be a, a French citizen of Jewish origin who might have his own religion, but would be as French as their Gallic neighbor and the German Jew in the same way. And that's the sort of intellectual basis of even to this day in many countries, the way people in Europe, Jews and non-Jews have sort of managed this process of emancipation and integration. No, it's so interesting because here we have all of these Christians basically saying like, all right, let's do this. It's the 19th century. Let's give them the homeland. And then the Jews are are really, really torn. There's these questions of assimilation, diaspora. I mean, like, 
What's actually happening within the Jewish community is, is really, really fascinating. It's so funny to me because you've, you've basically picked up on our biggest secret, right? Which is that we can't agree on anything. There's very little Jewish consensus then or now. There's no monolith of Jewish opinion. And, and that's sort of a through line throughout all of this, isn't there? Like the, the outside world wants one thing for Jews and Jews are sort of almost not sure what they want. And also that the outside world thinks Jews are acting as some kind of a monolith. Yeah, of course. You know, this is the kind of source of so much anti-Semitic kind of legend and thinking that somewhere there were the elders of Zion and they go into a room and they make the decision and everybody toes the line. When I was giving speeches uh, early in this century across the Middle East about American foreign policy and support for Israel, I'd say, you know, look, I let me just, you know, I, I'll tell you about two Jews who I know. There's George Soros and there's Paul Wolfowitz. And everybody goes, yeah, oh, Soros, 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 Jewish conspiracy and so on. Malaysian prime minister identifies him as the financial enemy of all Muslims. And then, of course, Paul Wolfowitz, oh, Iraq war, Bush, neocon, Jews, Jews, Jews. I said, but the trouble is Wolfowitz and Soros hate each other. And... Soros really wants Wolfowitz to have nothing to do with running American foreign policy. And so, but what do they do when they disagree? They don't go into the, the, the conclave of the elders of Zion, the secret room, where they hash out the party line and they both come out. No, what happens is we have an election. And the way things work in America is the side that gets the most votes from non-Jews wins the election. If this is a global conspiracy, it's a very ineffective one. So, yes, that that the lack of understanding of the complexity, the dynamism, and the, you know, sometimes just the plain and simple lack of unity in the Jewish world is something that often neither Jews nor non-Jews fully understand or take into account. It's almost like the anti-Semites give us too much credit that we are like this force conspiring behind the scenes when like, if you've literally met three Jews, you know, not that we're not organized, just that we more likely disagree on most things than agree. <laughs> In your scholarly opinion, have you found that? The reason that the Zionists win the political competition among Jews and actually emerge to become a leading and then really the leading political force in the international Jewish world is because the secret weapon of the Zionists is they can get more support from non-Jews. So while the book has plenty of analyses, very brilliant of, of many policies, American mainly fallen and failed, uh, it is not a book of policy prescriptions. Yet I wonder, this is a vastly unfair question, but Upon completing this mandatory reading of this book, uh, what do you think an American Jew, uh, what kind of different opinion might an American Jew walk away with? What kind of insight would you wish an American Jewish reader to have? And, and what kind of insight would you wish just a non-Jewish American interested in American foreign policy to walk away with? I would hope that actually one thing that would come away, that both Jewish and non-Jewish readers would come away from this is just how American American Jews are. I mean, it really is extraordinary the degree to which the cultural forces and the questions that sort of agitate Americans generally, and the questions even about Israel and Zionism that agitate Americans. We're just like everyone else, only, only more so. The American Jewish community is American. 
I think also this understanding for, for American Jews and Jews generally is that Israel is a country filled with Jews for whom Herzl was right. That is that liberal politics, the Enlightenment, liberal order would not be enough to protect the Jews. For American Jews, many of them, there's the sense that they're the Jews for whom Herzl was wrong and that they haven't actually themselves needed a homeland in Palestine to protect them from anti-Semitism. But in fact, although there have been problems before, and certainly we're seeing some rather troubling things right now, on the whole, uh, American society for American Jews has been among the most welcoming environments that Jews have seen. So that you have sort of two visions of Jewish history embodied in two different populations. I would hope that for American Jews, for that matter, Israeli Jews, reading this book will help them understand some of the questions that are inside the community and perhaps even contribute to a little bit of respect and understanding on both sides toward the other. For non-Jews, I would like them to understand a little bit better that we actually need to try to think about our policies in the Middle East, maybe in the same ways we think about some of our other policies. And just as that we need to work a little bit harder on our foreign policy generally as a country, we need to think a little bit more rigorously and deeply about the Middle East. But we do what we do in the Middle East, not because the Jews are making us do it. You know, it's funny how people will say, oh, the Jewish media is uh, driving the converse, the pro-Israel conversation. <laughs> I would like for American Gentiles to look at the way in which even for people who are not themselves anti-Semitic and have no desire to, to indulge in hatred of any kind, that these deep set cultural means that many of us are not even consciously aware of, you sort of make it so that a lot of people see a Jew and a bag of money in a picture and they immediately stop thinking and figure this must be the cause of everything without even interrogating the relationship between the Jew and the money, the Jew and the and the other Jews, and then the other people in the picture. But, you know, you don't stop thinking at this point. You actually need to start thinking. Walter Russell Mead, thank you for being on Unorthodox. The book is The Ark of a Covenant, the United States, Israel, and the Fate of the Jewish People. Thank you for being our Gentile of the Week. Well, thank you so much for having me. Tada. Thank you so much. That's it for today's episode. We hope you found it meaningful. Unorthodox is a production of Tablet Studios. The show is hosted by me, Leah Leibowitz, with Stephanie Butnick and Mark Oppenheimer. We're produced and edited by Josh Cross, Robert Scaramuccia, Quinn Waller, and Ellie Blyer. Our team includes Sarah Fredman-Ader, Daron Ruskay, Tanya Singer, and Sam Hacker. Our episode art is by Esther Werdiger. Our theme music is by Golem online at golemrocks.com. Write to us. We always love hearing from you at P.O. Box 20079, New York, New York, 10001. Rabbinic supervision by Rabbi Deborah J. Robbins at Temple Emmanuel in Dallas, Texas. And we come to you from the glorious and rebuilt Israeli outpost of Tablet Studios. Shalom, chaverim. <laughs>